So I guess this is what happens after your pastor has been around for a little over 10 years. He might start needing glasses to be able to follow his notes. I don't know if I'll need them every week, but apparently I do this week. Let's pray together as we open our heart to God. Oh God, have mercy on all of us who are dealing with bodies changing, whether we're in our 40s or we are in our 80s or we are teenagers. Help us to embrace the gifts and beauty of our bodies and our life in this season. Help us all to embrace the gifts of hearts changing and minds opening, and may that be our gift this day. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. So the story of the rich man and Lazarus. <laughs> I knew it would happen sooner or later. You can't spend much time in the Gospel of Luke without talking about money, especially my money and your money, and about how much money you and I actually have compared to most in this world, which, of course, just feels a bit like another guilt trip, doesn't it? It seems to me that's how we often feel when we read one of Jesus's parables about money or when the church starts talking about money. Something in us probably starts bracing for a little bit of a guilt trip. Of course, being the open-hearted and faithful Christians that you all are, I know that you are a people who want to listen and to respond faithfully. I know that because I've seen your heart. But can we just also admit that we almost always have something in us resisting and guarding and thinking, ah, oh, here we go again. Do we have to talk about our money? I once heard someone say that People can be really sensitive when you start talking about their God, which is why we get so defensive when someone starts talking about our money. Ouch, kind of hurts, doesn't it? But I think there is some truth in that, which has got to be at least part of why Jesus talks about it so much. Now, I'm sure some of you have heard the line along the way about how Jesus talks about money more than anything else. Well, I have some good news and some bad news for you today. The bad news is that whoever you were listening to at the time, even if it was me, I don't remember, but whoever you were listening to at the time didn't have their interpretive lens on quite straight. Money, it's used as an example quite a bit, but it's not Jesus's primary topic. The good news, though, is that Jesus doesn't care more about your pocketbook than he cares about you. The thing that Jesus does talk the most about is the kingdom of God, what it looks like and how to live in it and how to participate in it here and now and how that can make all the difference for the life thereafter. What Jesus does care about a whole lot is the whole of your being 
and about your soul and about your living and how it can be connected to the fullness of life and all its goodness for you and for your neighbor and for all of creation, which is why then Jesus does talk about money a good bit. Your pocketbook apparently plays a pretty big role in all that. And Luke's writings, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts in particular, are especially known for reminding us of all of this, which is why I knew this topic was bound to come up sooner or later this spring as we spent time in Luke. You see, of all the Gospels, Luke is going to talk about this the most. Remember when Luke tells the story of Jesus, he doesn't regulate the dynamics of the rich and the poor to one little sermon series or one little chapter or one little project along the way. Luke is always bringing these themes to the forefront again and again as he tells us the story of Jesus and then later the story of the church. I mean, do you remember a few weeks ago when I talked about how important tables and eating together is in the Gospel of Luke and how it's one of the essential, unique themes of Luke? Well, that same is true about our money and about the rich and the poor. It's one of those essential themes in Luke. It just keeps coming up again and again in really unique ways. Like when Mary gets pregnant and goes to see her cousin Elizabeth and sings that beautiful Magnificat, Mary's song is all about God turning the tables on the rich and the poor. God has brought down the powerful and lifted up the lowly, she sang. God has filled the hungry and sent the rich away empty. Luke's the only one to tell us about this song. And so from the very beginning, we're hearing that something between the rich and the poor is about to change with Jesus. Luke's also the only one to tell us about the time when Jesus goes back to Nazareth and reads that passage from Isaiah, uh, claiming that Isaiah's words are a picture of his own ministry. The spirit of the Lord is on me, he reads. God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and to proclaim release to the captives and to let the oppressed go free. That's how Jesus introduces his ministry in the Gospel of Luke. And you may not know this one, but Luke has his own version of the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit. And Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. No, that's Matthew's take on what Jesus said. But in Luke, it's just blessed are the poor and blessed are the hungry which is then followed by, but woe to you who are rich and woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. All of that in just the first six chapters. And that list, it just keeps going on and on. uh, And it includes the fact that Luke is the only gospel writer to pass down this particular parable from Jesus about the rich man. And Lazarus. Now, I should probably take just a moment to make sure you do recognize that this parable, it is about me, my money, and the poor. 
If you read that whole chapter, it comes out of, it's pretty clear Jesus is talking about our money. What Jesus is not teaching primarily about is heaven and hell and what's going to happen to us when we die. Now, remember, throughout the Gospels, Jesus brings that topic up in all kinds of stories to point to that mystery of our life on the other side of death's door. Sometimes it's a story about bridesmaids who are left out of a wedding banquet. Sometimes it's a story about a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. This time we hear a story about a rich man and Lazarus who are separated by a great a great space. Lazarus is with Abraham and the rich man's tormented in the fire of Hades. None of these stories are an explanation of literal places and events. They are parables. And remember, parables are different even than allegories. They don't have one-for-one correlations to something else. Parables are different than all that. Parables are stories that are meant to work on us over time. Parables are a lot like yeast that can get into a little bit of the dough of our hearts and our minds, and it keeps working on us so that eventually it begins to expand and elevate our souls. It's how yeast works in dough, and it's how parables are meant to work in us. And of course, this parable is no different. This story, it does a job on us, doesn't it? And it has some pretty strong images that don't sit too well with us, not to mention it brings up all kinds of questions. Yeah, some about the afterlife, and yeah, some about this life, but ultimately, all of it is questions that are connected to me, my money, and the poor. To help us get a sense of that, I want to take the story apart piece by piece and then put it all back together to see what we are left with so that it can do the kind of work that Jesus meant for this yeast to do in us. Now, as you remember, the story starts with two people who are actually living at the opposite extremes of life. The rich man was not just richer than most. He is the top of the 1%. His clothes are not just nice. Jesus describes them as purple and fine linen, which in the ancient world is the best of the very best. This rich man's food is lavish, and not just on feast days or holidays, but it is lavish every day, Jesus says. This man is the top of the top. Lazarus, on the other hand, isn't just down and out. He is the poorest of the poor and the sickest of the sick. He longs for the food scraps that fall off the rich man's tables, you know, leftovers in the trash. He'd take them if he could. He longed for them, was the word Jesus said. It didn't matter who or what else had eaten off of them. He was desperate. His body is covered in sores. Kind of an echo of Job there, isn't it? His body is covered in sores, and even dogs would come and lick them, Jesus said. And it's worth noting that in ancient Israel, you know, dogs were not household pets. These aren't groomed animals who have had all their shots. 
Dogs in Jesus's world were scavengers roaming the streets in packs. They were mangy, dirty, disease-ridden, and disgusting. And when these packs passed by Lazarus, well, they had a little snack. They'd gather around and lick his oozing sores. See that detail about the dogs is Jesus' way of saying that Lazarus isn't just hungry and poor and sick. Lazarus has lost all his dignity. He's lost all his humanity, his personhood. He is at the bottom of the bottom, which means that these two individuals could not have had a larger chasm between them. They are living in these night and day realities. And just to make sure that this nightmare of Lazarus' life doesn't start casting a shadow over the rich man's life, there's a nice fence that's put between them. This is how Jesus paints their lives. It's how he sets up the story. Two completely different lives separated by everything that could possibly set two people, including a physical barrier. In other words... There's no going back and forth between their two worlds. You're either on one side or you're on the other. Well, wouldn't you know it, both men die, as all people do. Death is a great equalizer in that way. It does come to us all, poor and rich alike. It will come to you. It will come to me. Only in Jesus' story, everything is not all equaled out nicely when we pass through death's door. Apparently, in the life beyond, there are some great reversals, but there's also sameness with this life of ours. There seems to be this continuity and great discontinuity between our life now and the afterlife. So when Lazarus and the rich man die, some things radically change for them, and some things remain strikingly the same. Did you notice that? Maybe the most obvious thing were the things that changed. Now Lazarus is the one to envy, and the rich man is the one to pity. As a little side note, it's kind of like Mary's song, isn't it, in that Magnificat? God has brought down the powerful, lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry and sent the rich away empty. It's a lot like what we heard in her song. This is a great reversal, and it's the first most striking thing about Jesus' story, I think. But did you notice how not everything changed? Because we still basically have two people in polar opposite realities, one of blessing, one in suffering, and there is such a chasm between these two. There is no moving back and forth between their worlds. You're either on one side or the other. See, this image that Jesus paints, the image of the bosom of Abraham and the suffering of Hades and the great chasm between them, they are not pictures of what literally happens when we die. They are an image of the reality in which these two people are currently living. They are a reflection of the gate that cannot be crossed. Those two extremes between Lazarus's life and the rich man's life. The chasm, that fence, 
that the rich man was just fine tolerating during his lifetime, he is now seeing for the very first time what it has actually always been. It is this barrier creating a paradise for some at the expense of hell for others. A barrier that's caused by caring more for our own comfort than the humanity of others. Let me say that one more time because I think this is a big part of what's often misunderstood about this parable and a really big part of the yeast that Jesus wants to work in our souls. The chasm, the fence, the gate that the rich man was just fine with. Maybe he even helped build during his life. He is now seeing it for what it is for the very first time. It is a barrier creating paradise for some at the expense of hell for others. Abraham couldn't send Lazarus across if he wanted to because, well, the rich man had allowed that chasm to grow so large. It just wasn't possible. Now, ironically, you'd think that might change the rich man but it doesn't really seem to, or at least not enough. It's another part of the continuity between this life now and the rich man after he died, a continuity in who the rich man is. Did you notice how the rich man never speaks to Lazarus? He only speaks about him, just like he'd probably done in his own life. And even when he speaks about Lazarus, did you know how he speaks about him? A bit like how a master would speak about a servant who needs to be ordered around to meet his needs. Did you catch that? Hey, Abraham, send Lazarus to relieve my suffering, he asks. Hey, Abraham, send Lazarus back to my family to tell them. I mean, yeah, the rich man's suffering is great, and And that makes us really uncomfortable in all kinds of ways. But did you notice that the rich man still acts like there is a chasm between his own humanity and the humanity of Lazarus? I kind of imagine Lazarus would notice it. I imagine Abraham would have noticed it. In fact, I imagine that most of those in our world who are used to the whole way the world is always bending to the demands of the rich and powerful at their expense, most of those in our world would notice it too. You see, in Jesus' story, there's continuity and discontinuity. There's reversal and sameness and how... You know, this parable, ultimately, it all is centering around me, my money, and the poor. So let me invite you to take a little bit of the yeast of this story into your own soul and just see what it does. I know that's uncomfortable. It'd be a lot more nice to just sort of set it aside and walk away from it. It's a parable that makes me uncomfortable, too. You know, part of what's so uncomfortable is that the parable doesn't actually tell us what to go and do, does it? There's there's really no way to make sure we've sort of checked this parable off our list so we can rest assured that, well, we're not quite like the rich man. There's really 
no way to be sure that we are all good and holy and secure when it comes to our money and what we have done with it and haven't done with it. Or at least there isn't as long as there is a Lazarus or two in our own community. <laughs> you know, this parable's hard, isn't it? Don't you just hate it when Jesus offers us parables that leaves us just really disturbed? I mean, it can kind of ruin your Sunday, can't it? But you know, maybe, maybe that's the point. The rich man, he was pretty comfortable with the way things were. Maybe being comfortable shouldn't be our goal at all. When it comes to me, my money, and the poor, maybe Jesus wants us to actually be uncomfortable. After all, it's going to take a lot of being uncomfortable for us to be willing to take down that gate and to get rid of that chasm and to discover that my humanity and the poor's humanity are bound together in one humanity. It's going to be able, it's going to take a little bit of discomfort if I'm ever going to discover that, you know, as long as they are in hell, so am I. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Amen.